welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, and I am your host for today, and I'm here with the author of a really lovely and thoughtful new book, and I am so excited to talk to them about this project. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, my name is Mimi Zhu, and I wrote the book, Be Not Afraid of Love. Great. Thank you so much. Um, This book was so beautiful and I'm so excited to talk about it, but I was wondering if perhaps we could start out um, with you telling us a little bit about your journey as an artist and how it led you to this project. Yeah. So I started out as a writer. I've always been writing. I've always been journaling and I did a lot of, you know, private work, writing to myself, writing in my own little diaries and journals since I was very young, Um, but I always knew that I was completely captivated by the written word and I wanted to create something, create a book um, that allowed me to craft out stories, especially my own. Mm. And so as I have been a writer, very like self-made DIY, um, I've just been like becoming more courageous and sharing it publicly, especially after I was experiencing some really intense healing after an abusive relationship is when I started to really very vigorously write every single day. And it wasn't for anybody but myself. Mm-hmm. However, what I found was very to be very healing was reading back on my writings with compassion Mm -hmm. and actually realizing that that's some of the most honest and tender work that I've ever done. And so I kind of started sharing it publicly with people, especially on Instagram or in my newsletter. And I collaborated with people within my community, uh, my friend Rin Kim, who designed my newsletter. And we just did this extremely DIY project for years that was free and accessible to anybody who wanted to read it. And slowly my readership grew, but it still felt like a very like intimate thing. And as my posts on Instagram started gaining more traction and Britney Spears reposted my work, um, I found that this was work that I couldn't kind of shelve away or dismiss by myself anymore. It was work that... I wanted to extend upon. And so my ultimate goal was to write a book. So I kept posting and posting and sharing, you know, just with the intention to share what I was thinking about that week and what I was going through. And I was reached out to and asked to write a book. And here I am having written this body of work that not only, you know, is a deep telling of a very, very painful, vulnerable, and beautiful story that I have lived. Mm -hmm. But it's also a deeper dive into like allowing my readers to see why I write what I do, Mm -hmm. right? I feel like everyone has gotten snippets of my writing for a long time, but this is like a body of work. So it's been a long journey. It's been very DIY for the better half of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now kind of being provided a platform to publish a book has been such a joy ride. Yeah. That's great. Um, And I think it's really interesting that 
something that you begin just for yourself can end up having this further life, you know, than perhaps you originally intended. And I think that that's a very nice tonic, I think, to what you hear a lot about the publishing industry these days, which is that you have to write for your audience or you have to fit some kind of like niche that already exists. But it's really great to see that you can just write something for yourself and still have it speak to others, you know? I think that's really beautiful. And I think when I have been told, you know, who's your key audience? Who are you writing for? I think that is an important question to ask. While at the same time, personally, it makes me feel almost surveilled, right? It makes me feel like as I'm writing, I have to do it for somebody else. And I think very instinctually, when we do feel like we're being watched, we just like shift our behaviors a little bit, right? We don't like fully let go the ways that we might when we're in our own company. And I think it's been healing and self-forgiving and self-passionate, self-compassionate to be able to just fully let go in my writing and write as if nobody's going to read it, which is very scary to imagine. And I'm not telling people to publish their diaries because I'm sure that makes people feel very nervous while at the same time, that kind of allowed me to be less afraid of telling some of the truths in the entirety that I have in the book and to not feel like I'm being judged or surveilled and just that my truth has validity and my truth deserves to exist on a page and deserves to be read, deserves to be seen, um, and that it is a legitimate form of literature as well. Mm, absolutely. And I think that touches on something that is so important to this book, which is just the the concept of authenticity, you know, and living the way that my therapist would put it, um, inside out rather than outside in, you know, and I think that that's really important that um, this book talks about how important that is, but also models it in a really, really effective way. Thank you. Thank you. I think yeah, in my healing process, in, you know, being tender with myself from everything that happened um, in that abusive relationship, I was so, and I write about this in many of my chapters, I was so anxiously running, I was escaping, I was like trying to sink into the outside world, find any stimulation, any kind of distraction outside of me to kind of get away from like the sizzling and the burning that felt like was happening inside. But I think what this book, what I aim to do with this book and what I did for myself is that it explores the inside world as not a terrifying place, but as a place of abundance, of a place of many teachers that exist within us. You know, for me, the inside world is very much the world of emotion, the world of intuition and being able to be more in touch with that allowed me to be closer with myself and to let myself return to my wholeness, my center, um, which I think is what healing is all about. You know, I, I write in my book that healing is not a fixing. Um, I think healing is recovering the truth that you were told to forget mm -hmm. um, through harm, through pain. And so yeah, I feel like returning to my inner world and kind of using my inner world as a terrain to explore, to be gentle in, to be curious, 
has been an extremely healing process that I hope people also get to do with themselves as they read the book. Mm, Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. And I think that what you've just said kind of touches on why writing can be so healing, which is that in a way it's kind of like the opposite of dissociation or repression. You know, it is like being present with the thing that you are trying to integrate. And I think that the book, um, again, yeah, just like models that really well and makes a really convincing case about how writing can be something that you do for yourself and for others and that that doesn't really have to be mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I am a deep believer in truth-telling, you know, I don't always actually think that we need to give everybody all the time every aspect of the truth, right? I think boundaries are important. Mm-hmm. And I speak specifically on my social media presence. Like there are some things I like to keep private and that I don't have to share, you know, for example, about my family or um, like who I'm dating or whatever. Like that is private to me. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time, I think truth telling to myself is always important. And journaling as a practice, I am very devoted to every single day, just because, you know, again, it allows me to explore my inside world with compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always tell any writer who wants any kind of writing advice to do that first. And I've done a lot of writing workshops as well. And I always encourage people to do stream of consciousness writing first, which is just literally opening a page and like scribbling your thoughts. And like you said, it's a form of presence and meditation doesn't just have to be sitting, you know, cross-legged on the floor. It can also be writing and letting your emotions spill out of you or letting them sit with your being. Mm. And that is so powerful, I think, because, um, you know, traditional forms of meditation can really help a lot of people, but also like that and mindfulness can actually be really um, difficult and perhaps harmful for people who've experienced trauma because it can feel like hypervigilance, you know, or over over focusing on a thing and to to find new ways to sort of like create that kind of presence is a really i think powerful thing for people who are looking for healing but for for whom some modalities don't really work totally and i think you know with meditation i think there's actually a misconception of what meditation actually is what i've learned while being in buddhist practice and going a lot to temples is that I think what people think meditation is, is a pushing away of thoughts, right? Like, obviously, as we sit there, our attention drifts, we start thinking about things. And I think some people think that or have been taught that meditation is you sit there and you shove the thoughts away. But what I've learned is that, for example, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, I forgot to do my laundry. And then the next part of the meditative process is me being like, I forgot to do my laundry. And right now I'm thinking about forgetting to do my laundry. You know what I mean? So it's actually being extremely present with every passing thought, every passing feeling. And in that way, just fully embracing the wholeness and perfection of the moment. Like Mm -hmm. the moment is perfect in all its wisdom. It's teaching you so much about how your body twitches, you know, how you blink, what you might need if you're thirsty and 
as you're meditating, if you're thirsty, like drink water, if you, you know what I mean? Like, I think meditation, what it really is for is for you to be constantly present in your surroundings, right? It's while you sit down and meditate for 10 minutes, it's allowing you to actually be meditative throughout the entire day. So I'm a big believer of meditation and I think reading and writing are forms of that as well. Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting. And I really, you know, love this idea that, um, how do I, how do I put it? That meditation can be used to sort of like reestablish a relationship with your own body, you know, like when that has become kind of unsafe through things that have happened to you or whatnot. Um, and that actually leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, this book deals with a lot of very um, heavy topics, you know, that are, um, that are very honest and very vulnerable. Um, but it's also very hopeful in a, in a, a really, I don't want to say pragmatic, but in a way that like feels real and like tangible, you know, and I'm wondering like, how do you approach that balance? You know, how do you be honest about really difficult things that have happened while also, I guess, maintaining that sort of self-compassion for you, what you're going through as you're writing and for the audience as they are reading, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, I knew while writing this book, especially on this book about love, I was exploring the intersections of love and fear. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how they so often kind of blend into each other. And I know so many people who constantly, you know, tell me like, I'm so scared of love. I'm so scared of relationships. I've been hurt before. And it's really interesting because this book always explores the gray area of that and like the just the like messy nature of both of these very powerful forces. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I really wanted in this book was to provide that balance mm -hmm. and to kind of include the fact that like include very realistically and without frills, the extreme pain that I've dealt with. And also not only that, but zooming out on a societal level and the extreme pain that the world deals with constantly you know the state violence that we are in relation to all the time like I think it was important for me as I'm writing about love to actually not romanticize love at all mm. to see love as a practice that is a force of change a force of power a force of embodiment and forgiveness and in that I have to acknowledge the forces that actually don't encourage us to be loving right and to achieve that balance, I have had to shed light on the, the really like painful, violent, historical things that we've been in relationship with. Our parents, our ancestors have been in relationship for a very long time, while also always bringing joy into it because joy is a force that I'm very grateful to have experienced a lot of, even as I was going through my intensive healing process. Those windows, those those specks of light, you know, like I wanted to always draw attention to that. And I've read so much literature, you know, like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and Ross Gay and like all these phenomenal writers who always bring like shed light on 
the deep pain and violence that exists in this world, especially for marginalized folks with black and brown people, mm-hmm. while always honoring joy and love as the most powerful force to counteract that. So I wanted to do something similar for me. And it is exactly what I've lived the last five years. It's been complicated. I, I dealt with the most painful relationship I've ever experienced. And I also experienced love in the most pure, magical, um, tranquil ways of my life. So both exist. Yeah. That's so good to hear. And it's so powerful because I think that something that you draw a lot of attention to just now and in the book is that, you know, trauma can happen on a, an individual level, but it can also happen to, it's collective too, you know, it can happen to peoples and it can be born of like systemic things and not just individual choices. And when you frame it like that, joy becomes really powerful, I think, because joy itself can sort of be a form of resistance almost, you know, to forces that don't really want you to experience joy or have decided that you don't deserve it or it's not for you, you know? Exactly. And in the last five years, you know, I have worked really hard, but I've also played really hard. And (laughs) I think that's been really important for me too, because I've been so deep into queer nightlife and I know so many wonderful collectives and friends out here who throw parties. And that's always the ethos of every event. It's that queer collective joy is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. And even though we don't always want to be in a mode of resistance, just us doing that together, being on a dance floor feels really transformative for so many of us because it actually is, you know, a response to our childhoods a lot of the times the loneliness that we felt growing up queer and Mm -hmm. quiet about it and actually just taking up space has felt extremely healing um, Mm -hmm. with people who look like me with people who dress the ways that they want to that makes them feel free It, it feels like collective liberation and that's what that collective joy really sparks especially in the face of the collective pain that most of us are aware of, you know, so yeah, I'm so grateful to have lived it. And I want everybody to, to always honor that collective joy, not only as like something to uplift you, but also uplifting community and actually shifting society. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's like a, um, it's the impulse toward life, right. Rather than the opposite. It is like leaning into, life rather than away from it toward love rather than fear, you know, in a way. So um, let's talk a little bit about the opening line of this book, um, because I love it. And it touches on some stuff that we've already talked about. Um, And you say in the book, I must be honest, I am terrified of love. And as you said, a a lot of us are, and love and fear are very entangled. And I'm wondering, like, what kind of... um, could you talk a little bit about like the strategies that you suggest and that you've taken up in order to, um, you know, move through this like very complicated entanglement? Absolutely. I really appreciate you for bringing up that sentence because I think the starting line of a book is always, you know, what draws me in. And for me, I knew that I just had to be really honest. Mm-hmm. As somebody who writes this book, I think all writers 
I need to follow my own advice, you know, and I would be a liar if I said that I have not been afraid of love myself for such a long time, especially intimate relationships and closeness, um, just because I've seen the shapes that closeness can take when it is between traumatized people. Um, and I really just wanted people to know that like being afraid of love is actually very normal because we live in a society that I think enables abuse, you know, um, is patriarchal and dominating and hierarchical. So of course we're afraid of love because I don't think we're taught what love actually is, right? But when teachers like Bell Hooks come into the picture, then we get a better idea of what love is. And I always return to this, but Bell Hooks says that love is a verb, as a practice. And when I actually thought of that, when I really let that sink in, love as a verb, I'm like, oh, it's an action. And I have the agency and the autonomy to act that way. And if I am scared of that, then I'm not allowing myself to fully embody love, mm. right? And so I feel like it is a state of embodiment and I really the point of this book was to allow people to know that the love that they might fear is actually a force that lives within them mm -hmm. and if they fear it then they fear themselves in mm -hmm. a lot of ways did I answer the question you absolutely did yeah that is so so wonderful and you know I think that something that's connected to what you say is that like I think you know, we do live in a society that I think makes abuse very easy and even is perhaps like structured on it in some ways. Um, but also like love makes you vulnerable and like we don't live in a society that rewards vulnerability at all, you know, and so learning to to be present with what makes you feel vulnerable can be really, really powerful, I think, like in this process of learning to love again, especially after trauma. You totally hit the nail on the head. I think love does make us vulnerable. Closeness makes us vulnerable. I think a lot of us have also not been taught how to be close to each other, you know, because we live in these like late stage capitalist times where we have to perform everything and be useful, right? And be productive and show to each other that we're, that we're worthy of love. And I just think that is, not a healthy way to live. I think we are, from the moment we are born, worthy of love deeply. And I think while we're learning to be accountable and learning to be honest about our flaws and maybe our weaknesses, at the same time, when we really allow us to sit with the fact that we were always wholly born worthy of love, we can then see each other as like the complex, complicated people affected by state violence, affected by our own relationships, you know, with society, you know, with the identities we take, with the families we were raised in. When we see all of those elements with compassion and we are in relation with each other, I do believe that it is a healing form of experimentation, right, of trying things out with each other, of listening, of learning. Mm. Um, and so I always say that my greatest teachers of writing this book are my community and my friends. That is where I've actually learned how to be 
loving and close and vulnerable and feel safe enough to do so. And I think queer people of color truly, as my friends, as my peers, as my community, have taught me that more than anyone. Like, I, of course, love my books and I'm a, such an avid reader, but I learn the most in relationship with people. Mm, that's really important, I think. And, you know, it's something that you touch on that, um, you know, the process of healing is not just an individual one, but it can also happen in community and that that can heal not just individuals, but also communities and bring them closer together. And a lot of this, I think, is really tied up into another important topic in the book, which is boundaries, you know, and how having healthy boundaries, which are like very often the first thing that gets compromised by experiencing intimate abuse, you know, that like when you actually embrace boundaries, it can like almost paradoxically create intimacy rather than inhibit it. Totally. I remember Prentice Hemphill said, and I'm, I, I don't think I know the quote verbatim, but it's love, uh, boundaries are an act of loving both you and I simultaneously. Mm. Um, and something along the lines of that, which I think about daily, um, because I think boundaries are a form of truth telling as well. And I think when we repress our boundaries or dismiss our own boundaries, we're not telling our loved ones the entire truth. And also I think seeing how people react to our boundaries is a very deep insight on how they view us. If they see us as somebody with agency or just as somebody to serve them, right? And so boundaries, setting boundaries has not been a practice that is familiar to me at all. You know, I grew up in an Asian immigrant household and so boundaries were not prioritized or would be taken very personally. Uh, but I think in my own boundary making practice, um, it's been actually so profound to see my loved ones respect them, right? And the greatest, something that I will pat myself on the back for is me making them. Like that's like saying no is like, something that gets caught in my throat sometimes like it feels like it tightens my whole upper body and being aware of that again through meditation through somatic awareness mm -hmm. is then being like actually you saying no especially if it's to people who love you is just you telling the truth mm -hmm. and that is absolutely okay especially if you're in a relationship that is healing that is loving that is understanding and reciprocal. Um, and I love when people say no to me, you know, and I'm myself learning to be extremely respectful of people's boundaries. Um, so yeah, I, I think boundary making is extremely important. I'm still learning to do it. And I feel like once I master it, I could write a whole book about that. Yeah. <laughs> I would read that book. Yeah. Because I also have a lot of difficulty with it. Um, but it is like it, you know, and that touches on, I think, a really interesting thing that like fear can hold us back in a lot of ways, but fear can also be like very interesting information because sometimes you're afraid of things that are like good for you, you know, because you've been trained not to value those things or to think that you don't deserve those things, you know? And so every time I find myself trying to impose a boundary, I get like that big well of fear, you know, but like once you push through that and you come out on the other side, it actually feels very like validating and, and self-loving, you know? 
Absolutely. And I think boundaries for me have always felt very scary because I have been met with violence when it comes to boundaries, you know, and I completely and deeply understand people who experience that kind of fear. And I think fear is actually quite useful in that way, right? Where fear is like, hey, if you're, if you say this right now, you could really get in trouble or you could be in danger. And so fear in that way, I think is a protector while at the same time, it can be very overpowering Mm -hmm. and it can kind of see everything as like a warning sign. And again, I think through somatic healing, what is really beautiful about it, as I've read in a lot of books, um, there's one book called um, The Somatics of Trauma, I think, but it's by Stacey K. Haynes. Mm -hmm. And it is a book that really taught me to make to be aware of our somatic trauma, right? By listening to our body, like like I said, kind of listening to the tightness of your throat or your chest and maybe how you wince or how you like, you know, like react to certain situations or triggers, right? But also relearning new patterns as well. Not being stuck in thinking that everything is dangerous, but learning the art of discernment, learning the skill and strategy of discernment. And so for me, I completely understand the fear that really overcomes our bodies sometimes. And instead of telling people to push it away, I actually want people to sit with it. You know, I'm learning to sit with my fear. And instead of being like, don't be scared, don't be scared. It's more like, what are you actually afraid of right now? Mm. You know, what is going to make you feel safe right now? What is going to make you feel peaceful? Do you actually feel in danger? If you do get out of there, Mm. if you, if you don't think this is actually dangerous, then why not we sit with this for a while, you know, talking to myself, kind of like a child or, um, yeah, just with a lot of patience and understanding that when fear arises, it can be, you know, alarming and very valid. But at the same time, it's something that needs to be moved through with tenderness. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of like com- comes down to, I think, like in a way befriending every emotion, you know, and like learning not to label them as right or wrong or good or bad, but just sort of like giving them all a voice and making like, and, and, and responding rather than like reacting, you know, like creating that second where you can like think for a second and, you know, consider. Definitely. Which goes back to meditation, right? It's being present with everything that's coming up, being kind to yourself as that's happening and just being aware that our bodies, our emotions, I mean, they're all connected and they're always, I think, working to protect us or to tell us something, to teach us something. And so I really believe that a lot of emotions, a lot of sensations that we experience hold a lot of wisdom to them. Yeah. That's a really lovely note, I think, to wrap things up on. Um, I wanted to thank you so much for coming to talk to our show about this book. This has been really lovely, and I feel like I just got a lot out of it personally. (laughs) I hope our listeners do, too. I know that they will. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Those were really beautiful questions, and it's got me in a reflective mode this morning, so I appreciate you a lot. Oh, thank you. It's it's very easy to, to come up with good questions about such moving, insightful material. So (laughs) 
thank you for reading as well. Um, it means a lot to me and every, like I'm in disbelief that people are reading it right now, but every time someone does, and some people have finished the book already, like and they tell me their thoughts and feelings. I feel really close to them um, in like a very spiritual way. So I'm really grateful for you. Also, I love libraries. I think they're one of the um, only kind of, structures that really are like quite anti-capitalist and mm -hmm. about like you know sharing and reciprocity so I love libraries um and I want to go to libraries all the time so so grateful to be on this podcast for real oh thank you so much I really really enjoyed this um, okay, listeners, well, you can pick up Be Not Afraid of Love, Lessons on Fear, Intimacy, and Connection at your local independent bookstore or library. I highly recommend that you do. It is an absolutely beautiful piece of work, and I think everybody can really get something out of it. Uh, for now, it is time to close this chapter, and I will see you next time. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.